When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, the Northeast Football App and Engagement Editor here at Chronicle Live. And we've reached episode 8 of our walk through the history of Newcastle United. Last week we covered Newcastle United and World War One, documenting how the club coped during that significant period and the amazing contribution of many of its players and staff. Today, for episode 8, we're covering 1920 to 1924, the World War One recovery and the club's first visit to the brand spanking new Empire Stadium in Wembley. As ever, I'm joined by Newcastle United's official historian, Paul Joanneu, and today we have a special guest in Dr. Dan Jackson, a fellow Geordie and historian and author of a fantastic book, The Northumbrians, Northeast England and Its People and New History. Dan has also been a historical advisor to War Cheryl Tweedy too, so great to have him with us. Dan, starting with you, welcome to the podcast. When I had the idea for this series, you were one of the first names that popped into my head to join us as a guest. You're ubiquitous on Twitter, sharing amazing historical content not necessarily just football or even the northeast but always fascinating stuff i'd love it if you could just give us a bit of a background on yourself your expertise and your history as a newcastle fan yeah thanks Matt. thanks for the invitation uh like you said i wrote the the book the the northumbrians which tr- was an attempt to get underneath why the northeast of england is still so distinctive and the people that come from the northeast are so recognizable their character traits also recognisable to the rest of the country. I use the term Northumbrians because it was more ecumenical because there's a kind of Geordie and Mackham division that's become even more pronounced over the last couple of decades. But it wasn't always like that. And we might touch on that later on, how you know football support used to be a, a bit less tribal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was looking for a term that tried to describe the land between the Tweed and the Tees and the shared characteristics and culture within that place. And yeah, there's, there's a there's a chapter in my book called Hard Work and Hedonism. The Northeast was always characterized by hard work uh, in the, the heaviest of heavy industries. And from that world emerged a distinctive culture. And football was a key part of that. When you were used to hard, grueling uh, labor uh, and working in teams, it's no surprise that that transferred pretty easily onto the battlefield, which, I, which I'm very interested in, but also the football field as well. Definitely. And you will have to explain the Cheryl Tweedy reference, otherwise some listeners might get confused. You had a television appearance with Cheryl, didn't you, uh, exploring her family tree? Yeah, she did. Who do you think you are a, f- a few years ago? And it uh, turns out that her ancestors were all mariners from North Shields. So uh, we filmed an episode down there, um, which is really interesting. She was dead canny, <laughs> dead down to earth. She had an entourage with her, but she was. Uh, <laughs> it was good fun. It's still on YouTube. Um it was, it, was, it was a good laugh, actually. Yeah, check that out and check out Dan's book as well. Every Northeasterner should own a copy of that book. It's great. So, uh, Paul, we'll start with you. The last episode heard us close out with the club picking up the pieces after the war. Attendances ah. and finances quickly recovered, didn't they? And Newcastle wasted no time reassembling quite a, a talented squad again. And it seemed like business as usual by the end of 1921. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's probably right. Recovery after the Great War 
was uh, more or less complete by the end of 1920-21. United again did well that season, finishing in fifth place, and the bank balance was replenished, and that all led to something of a spending spree. Uh, new men to arrive uh, for the for the new season were Billy Aitken. He cost two and a half thousand pounds. Dan Seymour, uh, another two and a half thousand pounds, and we'll we'll talk about him a little bit later on. Tom McDonald cost two thousand uh, pounds. He went on to score over a hundred goals for the Magpies, and also a record club signing of of a new centre forward called Neil Harris. He cost three and a half, or nearly three and a half thousand, and all of them came from Scotland. Yes. That rich Scottish seam of footballing talent being tapped into again. Can you talk us through how the two preceding seasons went between the end of the war and between Newcastle's first trip to Wembley at the end of the 1923-24 season and, and some of the new heroes on the pitch at St James's Park? Yeah, well, 1921-1922 was a bit of a disappointment after spending a lot of money. Uh, the finished mid-table... Um, but the following year, in 22-23, they finished in uh, fourth spot and made a late surge towards challenging for the title. Uh, but it was all too late. Neil Harris was a top leader and he was one of Newcastle's centre-forward heroes in a, in a long line of them. Um, maybe one of the least recalled, but he scored 101 goals and 194 appearances, which is a terrific record. Um, he came from Partick Thistle. And for four and a half seasons, he led the line uh, with gusto in, in season 1923-24, when Newcastle reached Wembley. He uh, he scored 23 goals, was on fire all season, and starred in, in the final and in the showpiece uh, a week or so later in the England v Scotland game. And he was later a manager uh, when he retired, uh, and his son, John Harris, uh, was a long-serving manager with Sheffield United after being a top player with Chelsea. Mm, great. Yeah, Neil Harris, not a name I'm too familiar with, so great to shed some light on him. He scored over 100 goals for the club, so not to be sniffed at all. Uh, Dan, to bring you in, can you shed any more light on post-World War One Newcastle United and maybe a bit about the economic picture of the 1920s in the North East generally? Yeah, well, I think that we shouldn't underestimate just the, how big a shadow the First World War cast on the, on the North East of England for a number of reasons. One was it's a kind of watershed of its of its industrial and economic preeminence. It reaches a kind of pinnacle before the First World War in terms of demand for its products. It gets a boost by the First World War in terms of armaments, manufacture, or, or manufacture on the Tyne and so on. It becomes a massive employer and there's a huge economic boom, which pretty quickly recedes actually uh, as, as peace uh, arrives uh, from 1918 onwards. So it's a kind of last hurrah of that golden age of in, in the industrial northeast. There's, there were there were some mini peaks after that, but it, it, it was never quite the same again after the First World War. And then the experience of fighting uh, the First World War was massive on the northeast. I've written quite a bit about this. That that basically nowhere, no other part of the United Kingdom responded more enthusiastically to Kitchener's call for men in 1914 than the northeast of England. And the response, 1914, the, the memorial at the Haymarket is a, is a fantastic illustration of that. You know, men just joining up in their working clothes, you know, a big gang of them. It's, it's meant to represent a column of Northumberland fusiliers leaving the town. And uh, no regiment raised more battalions, no British Army regiment raised more battalions than the Northumberland fusiliers, 55 in the First World War. Durham Light Infantry raised uh, north of 40. Uh, these just huge numbers, and uh, inevitably, therefore, the casualties 
were enormous. If you've ever been to Thiepval on the Western Front and you just see the DLI and the Fusiliers lists, and these are just the men that they couldn't find, the memorial to the missing. Thousands and thousands, 1,644 Northumberland Fusiliers were killed on the 1st of July 1916 alone, and most of them before 12 o'clock in the morning, in the afternoon, sorry. Horrific. I mean, I, I worked on a project called the Tynemouth World War One Commemoration Project, which looked at and delved into the 1,700 men from the old borough of Tynemouth, which was basically North Shields, who were killed in the First World War. And that's that, that was just a massive number. And, and I think we underestimate the impact that that must have had in terms of missing men at home, the trauma of all that, and the kind of ubiquity of, of military service. And we'll, we'll get onto the lineups, but, you know, there's at least... For the biographical information I've got, there's at least six of the Newcastle players that day were First World War veterans, including the captain, Frank Hudspeth, who was an able seaman in the Royal Navy in the First World War. But a huge impact, and it did cast a, it, it cast a lot, really long shadow on the region, and, and it, to a large extent, I don't think it ever really recovered from the First World War. Yeah, amazing to hear that, amazing to hear those numbers, and actually fills you with pride to be from this area, the, the response that the region galvanised for World War One, and among those men were some staff and players associated with the club, which we spoke about in our, our last episode. Yeah, uh, Paul, just as a footnote, yeah. sorry, I should just say that uh, women's football became enormously popular during the First World War as, as men's football was put on hold. And you had the all-conquering Blythe Spartans ladies winning the National Munitionettes Cup with their <laughs> lethal centre-forward, Bella Ray. I think oh, she got about fantastic. 120 goals in 1918. But it's interesting that the football authorities quickly stamped down on women's football after the end of the First World War. It was kind of like, and, it, and the same applied in the in the workplace as well, it was kind of like a pretty patriarchal get-back-to-the-kitchen-sink message in the workplace and in terms of ladies' football, mm. which is uh, which set back the women's game for decades, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alex Jackson touched upon that in our last episode, Alex Jackson from the um, National Football Museum. He didn't give us the detail on Blythe, though. It was great to hear that they were thriving up in, in, in Northumberland there. But, yeah, shame that that, that uh, it was one step forward, a number of steps back after World War One for the women's game. Um, Paul, the new National Stadium then in the suburb of Wembley, it was ready by 1923. Why the move from Crystal Palace? Not that Newcastle fans would have been complaining having watched their team or, or seen their team lose almost half a dozen games there in the Edwardian era. Well, yes, that's right. Um, Newcastle fans were more than well, more than happy to see the back of the Crystal Palace, albeit that they did go there uh, in the 20s, um, and we'll come to that in another episode. But the Sydney Marina was an awful venue for spectators. It had low terracing, only, only one stand. The fans couldn't really see much of the action when you had a huge crowd in the stadium. So the authorities started looking for a a new venue uh, well before the Great War, and they moved around to one or two stadiums before uh, the 1920s. So by 1923, uh, the country had a new national uh, football stadium. Uh, it was called back then the Empire Stadium, uh, situated in North London at Wembley, uh, but soon, of course, uh, to be known just simply as Wembley to, to every football fan, not only in the UK, but in, in the wider wider Europe and, and around the world many years later. The old Crystal Palace was ditched and the very first FA Cup final in 1923 was between West Ham and Bolton um, and that attracted a, a monumental crowd um, estimated by some at around 300,000 congregated on the on the new stadium uh, which was capped at 125,000. 
and, and mayhem followed, really. Uh, of course, that led to massive overcrowding and the famous white police horse called Billy mm. uh, entered the pitch to try and clear the area before the game could uh, start. Um, so after that sort of fiasco, uh, all the cup finals became all ticket matches and Newcastle United uh, were going to play in the very first all-ticket game. Mm, what an honour, yes. Of course, famous images of the horse. Amazing, no one was seriously injured in that final with more than double the attendance supposedly turning up. Uh, we'll, we'll talk in detail about the final in a bit, but I just thought, Paul, if um, you could tell us how the season itself began domestically prior to the Cup starting in January. Yeah, well, season 1923-1924 was much like the previous one. United were again challenging just outside the top places. Uh, they, they played some good football, but they finished in ninth position. They had plenty of goals in the side uh, with Harris, Tom McDonald, Stan Seymour, all a danger up front and all was grabbing goals. But after the turn of the year, the focus was on the FA Cup uh, and the new home of football, as it was going to be called, uh, and its landmark Twin Towers, which was become, which would become you know, a real landmark for every football follower. Of course, yeah. So, huge incentive to make the final. Newcastle managed it. Dan, um, any notes on their route to the final? There seemed to be a lot of goals, a lot of drama, some replays. Yeah, there is, and uh, there's some great photographs and newsreel footage of, the, of that cup run. There's, there's, um, I think it's one of the earlier round games away at Watford mm-hmm. and Newcastle where they're very rarely seen V black V diamond uh, shirt. If you've if you've ever seen that one before, to, uh, there's a great photograph of Frank Hudspeth leading the team out with the black V on, mm-hmm. and uh, sanding aside, he's often visible. Uh, is What's his first name again? Paul will know this. Is it Thomas Oliver? One of the um, he was the secretary, stroke chairman, stroke. He was he was on the board, wasn't he? He was a kind of well, he, yeah. There was uh, several. There was two or three Olivers. Uh, yeah. Frank Watt was the secretary. Uh, Oliver yeah. at the time was he was chairman. Oh, he was he was a director. Was James Lunn, I think. I think yeah. Oliver was chairman, and then James Lunn. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's come back to me now. Hudspeth's leading the team out, and there's Frank Watt with his big handlebar moustache and you yeah. know, big watch chain and all that. And then there's there's the other side is Thomas Oliver. I'm pretty sure was his name. He's often appears in these photographs and that very. It's 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 probably Piggy Blinders era. This <laughs> yeah. you know, in terms of the gents' fashion and haircuts and everything, they look really smart. Frank Hudspeth, as you said, Matt looks hard as nails, leading them out, shields lad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that that was a thriller. But then. On on YouTube, there's a there's a pretty decent pa- British Pathé highlights package of the semi final at uh, St Andrews in Birmingham against Man City, and as um, mm. often you know with these kind of footage from the 1920s, it can look a bit disjointed at times. But the 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 package ends with a cross from the left wing and Neil Harris, who we've already talked about, who was this kind of glamorous glamorous Jack Grealish type figure with this mop of dark hair. Just leaps like a salmon, bullet header, and the hair's waving around, you know, and he, he wheels <laughs> away. It's genuinely, it, it looks, a lot of that kind of older football can look very antiquated, but it doesn't, it's called Polly because it's still the era where players had their shirts out mm-hmm. before they started tucking them in more regularly from the 1930s. They just look a bit, they almost look modern. And I think, yeah. all will correct me if I'm wrong, it was only from about 1920 that Newcastle started wearing black shorts, wasn't it? More uh, regularly, it was blue until the First World War, was it? Yeah, it was 1920s, they switched on a permanent basis to black. And, and mm-hmm. certainly the clips on uh, Pathian News, which you can see 
on the web uh, they, they must have about 30 or 40 clips of newcastle games over the years and they're all worth a watch to anybody who uh, is interested in the history of newcastle united because they're wonderful yeah we'll we'll try and link to some of those in the show notes for because that watford game in particular sounds amazing and getting on for 100 years ago now as well, which yeah, is yeah. Uh, spectacular. Paul, any other details on the famous run to Wembley this season? Well, yes, there was one special uh, one special game to be, or one special uh, uh, tie. Yeah, the whole run was incident-packed and included. It was a marvellous tie with Derby County, which went to four games, believe it or not, uh, 420 minutes of football, 20 goals and eventually decided at St James's Park with a, a 5-3 Newcastle victory. The Magpies met Aston Villa in the final. Uh, but just before the game, uh, they rested almost the whole side in a league meeting uh, with their Wembley op- opponents at Villa Park. And that was just in case anyone got injured. Uh, they lost 6-1 as it happened. And ironically, goalkeeper Sandy Much, virtually the only first teamer who played, was badly crocked and missed the final. Uh, it was unlucky for the veteran Scottish keeper, but uh, in stepped the local lad, Bill Bradley, and he performed well at Wembley. Uh, and as it happens, he later ran a, a shop in North Shields for many years. How about that? Very harsh on Sandy much, but fair play to Bill Bradley for stepping up. Such a huge game. So let's set the scene then, uh, Paul. In early summer 1924, Newcastle fans were presumably ecstatic to secure a trip to the new stadium so early. Tell us about the mood among fans. Is it true that they some travelled on foot to Wembley? I read that in uh, your book, The Ultimate Record. Uh, well, if it's in there, it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> the year 1924, uh, that year was the cup final coincided with the vast Empire exhibition which was uh, fielded next to Wem- next to the stadium, uh, where millions of visitors saw the, the sights of, of the vast British Empire. Newcastle supporters headed for London and for Wembley for the very first time, and the, many of them must have taken in the exhibition as well. The travel by train, uh, some uh, on steamers from the Tyne and down the North, North Sea, and several wonderful uh, pictures uh, exist of, of them getting onto the onto the boats from the the quayside um and yes even a few uh, walked all the way to london um nearly 300 miles or so not quite sure if it was uh, sponsored or whatever but uh, they did it by foot and not quite sure if if they came back that way either <laughs> unbelievable that dan anything to add to that the geordie invasion on london it it would surprise people to know how many newcastle fans actually traveled for these occasions it was large numbers not not small numbers no, definitely not. I think I don't know which cup final it is, but there is there is those those great photographs of, of fans uh, leaving the Tyne by uh, packet steamer and uh, getting on boats mm-hmm. down to to the Thames to to follow Newcastle. But I wouldn't be surprised if they went by foot. Interestingly, you you're starting to see a lot more movement in general terms in the northeast because, as I touched on earlier about the First World War being this watershed, you're starting to see that economic de- decline. And you're starting to see kind of unemployment emerge as a, as a huge challenge in the interwar period. And for, for those on Twitter who might have been following the exploits of Hanwell Town, yes. in, uh, in, based in Middlesex, not far from Wembley, actually, who were formed in 1920 by exiled Geordie, I think, railway workers, or it might yes. be construction workers, I can't quite recall. But it's an interesting example of even as early as 1920, people were leaving the Northeast in search of work. 
so that's a hundred years ago you know when when the the economy was starting to decline and uh, people were, were uprooting down south which was which was booming in contrast to the north you know light industry that whole kind of western end of london arterial roads heading west you've got you've got you know, hoover factories and all sorts of things cropping up in, in a way that the the heavy industries of the north shipbuilding and coal mining were uh, on the downward spiral yeah great shout hanwell town do check those out check hanwell town out listener they're uh yes they're playing black and white and uh i mean until recently i was living in london not far from hanwell town and they they actually had a player called andy o'brien which i thought was fantastic (laughs) captained them so there's a there's a lot of crossover there and there's talk of you know newcastle fans go all going to a hanwell town game in um, ahead of a, a london away fixture when fans are able to return to games so that would be that would be great a pilgrimage to to hanwell who were founded by geordies 100 years ago Great story. Um, back to the 1924 final. Then, can you talk us through some of the players who made the starting lineup, please, Paul? Uh, yeah, United side, as I said before, was a decent one. Uh, and apart from the likes of Seymour and Tom Har- uh, Tom McDonald, which we touched on before, uh, as well as Neil Harris at centre forward, there was two new signings, two more Scottish internationals in Willie Cowan and Billy Gibson, both very talented midfield players. They were captained by a Geordie fullback, which we've mentioned, which we mentioned, Frank Hudspeth uh, from Percy Main. He went on to total 482 games for, New- for Newcastle over the mm. over the years. He started just before the war and, and finished um, at the end of the 20s. When he scored 38 goals, he was something of a, a penalty expert, banging the balls uh, into the net. So they had a good side. But they were up against a, a, an equally talented Aston Villa lineup. Yeah, four hundred and eighty-two games for, for Hudspeth's amazing. And you think how many he would have recorded had it not been for for the World War. So that's that's uh, some, surely something. So, sorry, did, ahead, did, uh, Hudspeth uh, with with um, oh, I've forgotten his name now. Bill McCracken, kind of pioneer yeah. that work on the on the offside trap before the First World War. He certainly did, and we'll we'll Hudspeth and McCracken. Um, yeah, McCracken started it just before the world first world war and and the pair of them continued in the early 20s and we'll cover and touch on that in the next episode uh, after the cup final when when everything came to a head and because of their specialized tactic uh, the FA had to change the rules <laughs> absolutely brilliant just to have such a grasp on the game that the rules have to be altered is unprecedented really so fair play to Frank Hudspeth and Bill McCracken for that so that we mentioned that the first FA Cup final at Wembley was quite chaotic and the FA made sure this was an all-ticket affair for, for safety, if anything. What was the official attendance estimated at, Paul? I assume it was a little lower than the 300,000 that was estimated the year before. And what type of game did they see when it started? Uh, it certainly was lower than that. It, uh, the, the official attendance was nearly 100,000. It was in the 90s. But all with all had to have the precious tickets, um, and even these days, those tickets uh, for collectors uh, cost a pretty penny. Mm. Um, you know, they saw a, a good final. It was an even contest for much of the game, with Bill Bradley stopping the Aston Villa attacks on several occasions. But in the second half, United secured the trophy uh, with two fairly late goals in the 80th. In, in the 80 minutes uh, area. Uh, Neil Harris and Stan Seymour scored them and Frank Hudspeth climbed what were to become the famous Wembley steps uh, for the first time and collected uh, the trophy. And that trophy they collected was the first time that Newcastle had actually won that 
because back in 1910, they the, the actually won the old FA Cup, uh, or English Cup, as it was mm. called then. Yeah, big deal, big deal. So Stan Seymour was on the score sheet. He's a name that is synonymous with Newcastle United. Can you talk to us a bit more about him, please, Paul? Yeah, well, he was one of, or is one of Newcastle's greatest characters. Uh, Mr Newcastle, he was eventually called a player, a critic, a director, manager and chairman. He was from County Durham, uh, from Kello. Uh, he was actually rejected by the club as a kid after a trial for being far too small. And, and that story has, has reoccurred for many players, to be honest. He joined Bradford City later on and headed to Scotland, uh, where he became a noted winger with Greenock Morton. But by 1920, he was a wanted man. Several, New, uh, several English clubs wanted to bring him back south. And Newcastle spent uh, two and a half thousand to to uh, secure his signature in May 1920, and he went on to appear right through the 20s for the club, a key figure as the one in the FA Cup, as we've just talked about, and then the league title. He was always able to score goals. 84 he got in 266 games, uh, but that wasn't the end of his career with Newcastle by a long way. Uh, he, he eventually retired and was something of a critic during the 1930s. He, he wrote a spot in the Evening Chronicle, uh, a regular spot, and in in, in Newcastle weren't very good in the later years of the 30s, and he was a fierce critic. Uh, but remarkably, uh, the club directors recognised that the need to do something at St James's Park, and he was brought back as a director in 1938, just before the Second World War. Uh, and that was a very much a rarity to have a, an ex-player on, on a closed shop board of directors. Uh, and for the next 30 odd years, he had a huge influence on the club. He was manager in all but name from, you know, during the 1940s and, and, and many of the years of the 1950s. He became a uh, 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 chairman, earned the title of Mr. Newcastle everywhere he went. It was, he was more or less manager for, for those three FA Cup wins in the 1950s. And uh, also famous for opening up his sports outfit shop in Newcastle, which uh, mm. for any Newcastle fan of, a, of, of many generations, uh, they popped into uh, occasionally. It's still, I believe, called Seymour's Corner uh, near the Theatre Royal, uh, and that was a famous spot in, in the city. And his son, Stan Seymour Jr., also became a director, of course, and later chairman. So he has a huge part to play in the history of Newcastle United from the 1920s onwards. Absolutely, yes. Some story. Dan, anything to add on, on, on this period, the game, Stan Seymour, any of the other characters involved with the club at the time? Well, what I think is interesting is you know Stan Seymour's County Durham lad and the, the classic uh, mixture of Northeast players and Scottish players in the Newcastle lineup that day. But on the Aston Villa side, you've got Billy Curtin, who was an England international, uh, and he's from Newcastle. He was their inside right that day. Uh, he was from Pandon, in the, right in the heart of the city, actually. Yeah. And he'd scored the winner in 1920 when Aston Villa had won the sixth FA Cup. And alongside him that day was Clem Stevenson from Seton Delaval who was another England international who went on to win three league titles with Huddersfield Town. One of the, one of the greatest players of the 1920s, in fact, who Stevenson was, was they said his, his passes were as sweet as stolen kisses. So it was just <laughs> as early as the 1920s, there was, you know, the old thing about Geordie players, the one that got away, you know, whether it's Bobby yeah. Charlton or whatever. But, you know, it was happening back then because because the North East was producing this surplus of footballers. They usually emerged from those coal mining communities so it was fairly typical, but yeah, uh, Aston Villa. It's always worth just running the rule again, running, going down the 
player list for the opposition because you always find northeast players in that period on both sides usually. Yeah, wow, brilliant detail. Though, so Jordy's haven't always been, you know, performing for other clubs. It's 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 happened for for as as, as long as a hundred years. It's amazing to know that. Great, great yeah. stats. We've got a little bit of bonus content then for for people watching on our YouTube channel or on video embedded on our website. Click the link in the description. You should be able to find this image we're looking at now of uh, Newcastle captain Frank Hudspeth standing on the pitch at Wembley, having just collected the FA Cup trophy, and he's posing alongside a caped police officer. Uh, guys, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this amazing image. It's quite a crowded pitch area in, in Hudspeth, looking hard as nails, quite frankly. Yeah, and the policeman's wearing the cape because it was it was a wet day, wasn't it? And uh, I only know this from Wikipedia, but it says that they, it was a rainy afternoon, and because a lot of the ground wasn't wasn't under cover, people were using the match programs as sort of makeshift umbrellas, really. Uh. So it means that the match program is very rare because they're all sopping wet by the end of the afternoon. Um, but it's a fantastic image. It's one of the most iconic images, I'd say. Of, you, you know, we all know the kind of Jackie Milburn era, but the, this image of Hudspeth, great Newcastle shirt that with a massive kind of civic mm. crest on the chest. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got his shirt untucked. I mentioned that he's, he's Royal Navy career in the First World War, and I think he ended it ended up as a physical training instructor in the Royal Navy uh, at the end of the war. And it's no surprise given his athletic uh, prowess, but it's a great image. Just continuing on, Frank Hudspeth. Ironically, he uh, he was, as you say, in the Royal Navy, and he was stationed at, uh, believe it or not, the Crystal Palace for, for two or three years because <laughs> the Crystal Palace was taken over by the Navy, and there was a huge naval uh, training complex there and that's where frank ended up uh, with several other newcastle players at the time brilliant legend legend chaps uh, great episode it really is just amazing to discuss newcastle winning trophies <laughs> never tire of that thanks paul thanks dan for joining us for this one hopefully we'll be able to get you back on for future episodes in the series thanks very much and uh Yes, exactly. And uh, as I said at the top of the show, do check out Dan's book, The Northumbrians. I, I think uh, every Northeastern will appreciate it. And uh, of course, every Newcastle fan should have a copy of Paul's book as well, Newcastle United, yeah, yeah. The Ultimate Record. We'll be back next week to chat about Newcastle United winning more silverware, this time the league title, so don't miss that because it's uh, the last time it ever happened. And uh, in the meantime, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you use. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United to channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for new episodes of Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. We're doing these every week. And if you have a history question about Newcastle United, then email us at the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com. We have experts like Paul and Dan here who might be able to answer some of those. And stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletter. It's free. You get a morning news roundup, an evening news roundup, and breaking news as and when it happens directly emailed to your inbox. The link is in the show notes. Hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United updates, tick the box, and you'll be signed up. So thanks very much for listening to Chronicles, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joanu, and Dr. Dan Jackson. <laughs>